the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello, and welcome to the autumn series of m and Perspective, where we will be taking an in-depth look at some of the key trends influencing m and I'm David Watkins, a corporate partner at Slaughter and May, and over the course of the next three podcasts in this series, we're going to be looking at some of the current differences and indeed similarities that we've been seeing in deals across three key regions, Asia, the US, and Europe. First up is Asia, where partners Natalie Young and Chris McGaffin from our Hong Kong office will be discussing geopolitical pressure and pivotal shifts in Chinese policy. They will also be giving us a broad overview of deal activity and the current dynamics playing out in Southeast Asia. So if I can start then by talking about some of the geopolitical tensions, um, you'll all be familiar with the background, uh, but maybe I can give a sort of perspective from, from in Asia. I think 20 years of, of, of Chinese growth economically and influence was, was uh, something people over here were very proud of. And only recently there was much more of a pushback from overseas. I think the temperature ratcheted up uh, a thousand degrees in 2016 when Trump was elected on a, America first platform, which I think from our perspective was really a, a sort of make life tough on China mentality. And we saw three things immediately. Uh, one was, of course, the tariffs on, on goods between China and the US. The second was attempts to lock China out of the global supply chain. So I saw that in, particularly in our tech clients who would, who, were, who would have to get around export controls and bans in order to supply into China. And then finally, the third thing that we saw immediately was enhanced foreign investment screening by CFIUS. Um, over the last few years, we've seen that, that sort of anti-Chinese investment growing in certain jurisdictions, uh, especially, I think, in the wake of COVID-19 last year. So where are we now? I think from here, we don't see any softening of the US stance uh, post-Trump. I think uh, the Joe Biden administration is using basically the same tools and indeed a lot of the exemptions on tariffs have fallen away. So in some respects, the situation's worse. And we've also seen more sanctions on Chinese officials. Um, I think it's clear also that this is not just a economic conflict or competition, but actually it's broader, it's political, it's cultural and it, you know, possibly military as well. Um, we saw last week or two the uh, Australia, the US and the UK pact, which relates to the Indo-Pacific seas. Um, so I think with those broader considerations in mind, I do think it's highly unlikely that we can look with any certainty at tensions stepping down in any meaningful way over the short term. And I think we see the same outside the US still. So uh, we have read, um, although it's not been confirmed, I don't think that the EU will meet with the US in the next month to discuss a joint approach to hostile foreign investment screening in certain sectors such as AI. And I think for hostile, the papers were certainly reading that as Chinese. Um, earlier this year, we saw Italy block a acquisition by a Chinese company of a semiconductor business using its golden share. And closer to home, uh, we've seen India's press note three is still in force, which effectively bans any investment by Chinese business from the first dollar, even if it's offshore to offshore and indirect in any business in India. So quite a hostile environment for Chinese investment. What does that mean for us and for our clients in practice? I think three points. Um, first is that foreign investment scrutiny has become increasingly challenging and very difficult when we are doing deals, especially for Chinese clients. Um, 
I think global foreign direct investment review is now something that we do as a routine gating item in our transactions, uh, along with merger control. So right at that first step, and um, frankly, it's it's a bit of a headache. So Natalie and I both work for SF Express, a Chinese logistics company, on their recent purchase of a controlling stake in Kerry Logistics, which is a Hong Kong listed but has business globally. And when we ran the first uh, review, we found we had 49 foreign investments to deal with uh, on the foreign direct investment review. I think um, for me, not the non-specialist or the corporate advisor sitting alongside Natalie, who's our, our head of this part of the business. The key takeaways for me are one, you need to do more due diligence, both in terms of the regimes and the timelines and, and who's regulating. The second is that there's a real difficulty interpreting what sensitive business might be. Um, and it seems to change as policy considerations change, which in turn makes it really challenging to know how regulators are going to react to a particular transaction. And finally, because of that, I think it's really important for our clients to have a strategy for dealing with foreign investment concerns up front. Now, helpfully, behavioural remedies are, are, are fine in many jurisdictions, but it's not impossible that you may have to divest either something from the bidder or the target. Um, and therefore, you need to know that impact on deal timeline and valuation. So on the FS, SFF Express deal, um, they actually had to divest the Taiwanese business because it could not be controlled by a Chinese controller. Obviously, that was a, a, a significant thing for us to deal with. The second point I'd make is it's not only relevant to Chinese uh, buyers. I think particularly if you're thinking on the, on the sell side, if there's any Chinese buyer in your process, you really need to have a good law firm um, look at the FDI analysis from an early stage to assess deliverability and, and valuation. And then the, the final point I have on this kind of geopolitical piece is, uh, as we look a bit further down the horizon, I do have concerns about whether we're going to effectively end up with a world where you have two different spheres of influence. So you have sort of the US and its allies, and they have their own tech and governance standards. And on the other hand, you've got sort of China and its allies. And, and what that means for our clients that are global businesses trying to operate globally. I think we've already seen um, with some of my own clients the difficulties in the semiconductor space of having both a Chinese uh, consumer and also an American consumer. Uh, I mentioned some of the export control issues earlier. And then also I think the other business that we're already starting to see this is banking business, where I think if you have a material Chinese business that's licensed there and you have a material business that's maybe licensed in the US, things like these tit-for-tat sanctions are already making life incredibly difficult. So I think that's an area where we will see further risk uh, as we go forward. I mean, it is really interesting, Chris. So all of this, it almost feels like the catalyst was China, but all of these changes are here to stay. So, you know, you mentioned India and Japan. I think they introduced FDI rules pretty much explicitly or specifically um, in relation to Chinese investment, even though the word Chinese doesn't really come up in the rules. Yeah. Uh, but it's really had a, you know, a, a huge impact on the work that we do, because now, you know, traditionally, it was always, let's do a multi-jurisdictional analysis for merger control. And now, in every pretty much every transaction we do, it's merger control plus FDI, regardless of whether it's a Chinese company or not. So I think that has been a real significant change in the past two or so years yeah. on, on the transactions that we do. Yeah. Oh, so moving on to the next topic. Um, so we've talked a lot about what's going on globally. So I'm going to focus on what's going on in China. Um, and in some ways, it's almost like a, a grand drama that's unfolding. Um, and you 
don't quite know what the next act is going to entail. Um, and in my in my head, um, I would say that there are you know three or four acts to this drama. The first, I think, was in relation to Alibaba and Ant Financial. So everything kicked off last year with the suspension um, of the Ant Financial IPO, and then came a crackdown on tech. So the first, uh, I guess, um, casualty was Alibaba itself, um, and then we'll focus on the abuse of dominance type issues. So there was a, the high profile um, dawn raid on Christmas Eve, um, and then the staggering um, 18.3 billion fine, which was imposed on Alibaba earlier this year. Um, and then there are a few supporting actors as well. So the Meituan has also been investigated um, for abuse of dominance type issues. Um, and then also 33 tech companies were called in before the regulator and they had to sign um, a um, compliance statement um, saying that they will comply with various laws, not just antitrust, but antitrust is a big part of that. Um, and so I think that that was really, for me, the, the abuse of dominance and clearing up um, act, um, conduct, which was seen as anti-competitive and anti-consumers. And, and at the heart of all of this was this requirement to choose one from two, which is effectively is imposing exclusivity. Um, and Alibaba had been accused of this for quite some time, as had Meituan, but nothing really came of it um, before last year. Um, so consumers were disgruntled, uh, traders, suppliers who were selling their goods on, on Alibaba's platform were disgruntled. Uh, but it really wasn't until last year that the government has, has paid attention to this and took very swift action. So now I think everyone in, in China will know that this choose one from two behavior is, is not okay and that it would be pretty high risk um, conduct to engage in. So that's the first act. And then the second act was really in relation to cybersecurity. Um, and that was really DD, um, DD's listing in the US. And then immediately, a few, few days afterwards, there was an announcement um, that the Chinese regulator was investigating DD for cybersecurity issues and data privacy and took some drastic steps. So new, all new registrations were prohibited on DD, and DD is the equivalent of Uber. Um, so you can imagine that acquiring new users is quite crucial to its business. So all of that was prohibited. And actually, the app itself was banned from Chinese app stores for, for some time uh, whilst these issues were playing out. So, again, this is it, the government taking very swift, very dramatic, unexpected actions um, against a, a quite a key um, app, a key tech company in China. So we've got Alibaba, we've got Didi, and there are, again, a few supporting players in the, in the um, bride-hailing um, app industry as well. And then you have merger control. Um, so, and the key star player here would be Tencent. Um, so there are a number of um, decisions against Tencent, first in relation to its um, acquisition. Um, so that was blocked. So its subsidiary was, was trying to acquire um, a, a competitor um, and, and that was blocked uh, on grounds of competition concerns. And if you look at the decision, um, so this is Douyu Huya, um, there were significant competition issues. Um, so there was a combined market share of 60 to 80 percent in video streaming. I'm not sure, Chris, whether you in, in your days when you played video games, whether you were streaming, streaming um, those games. But it's a really big thing in China, as I'll talk about later as well. Um, so, so that was that was a really key um, prohibition because it's really the only third prohibition since 20, uh, 2008, um, where merge control was introduced in China, that a deal has been prohibited and certainly the first involving a, a purely domestic transaction. 
Um, so so a, a really key transaction there to be blocked. But then a few days later, um, it's, it's acquisition, uh, a 10 cents acquisition um, of, of another company was approved. So it, it clearly wasn't necessarily something against 10 cents, but I think the, the government was sending a message um, that you, know, you do have to go through the proper channels, you do have to get your approvals and you will be scrutinized. Um, I think the second key for me, the, the second key decision in the merge control space also involved Tencent, and that was for a gun jumping decision. So they had acquired a company in 2016, um, and they had not um, filed or, or notified um, SAMA, the, the competition regulator, of that transaction. And at the time, they couldn't. Um, so it involved a, a VIE structure, and, and no company with a VIE structure could submit a merge control filing. But in spite of that, um, five years later in 2021, um, Tencent was, was fined um, for gun jumping. And it's also the first case, first gun jumping case where um, remedies were imposed. So Tencent had to waive exclusivity um, of, of some of, so, so this involved uh, Tencent Music um, and they had to waive some of the exclusivity with its artists. And, and so again, quite a key decision um, imposed on Tencent. So Tencent was very much featured in, in the third act of, of merge control and, and, the, and how the government can really take actions unexpectedly um, in that space. And then the fourth and perhaps final, not sure, um, act would be, I think, where we are now, where there's a real narrative coming out of China that essentially signals that the government is going to be more interventionist going forward, especially in sectors which affect um, the daily lives of the general public. And there's this real sense that the government wants to be uh, a force for good and, and wanting to, to help um, the, the general public. So you're looking at um, restrictions which were imposed um, on private tutoring. Um, so if you have um, any tutoring materials that touch upon the Chinese um, education or Chinese curriculum, um, then you cannot have that for profit. So it has to be non-profit. And that obviously is a key key change to the entire industry overnight. So you're looking at private education, you're looking at gaming restrictions. So if you're under 18 in China, you can only um, play video online video games for three hours a week, which I don't know, Chris, <laughs> how would that have affected you as, as, a, as a child? No. Would have been quite significant, right? <laughs> it's a pretty significant incursion into, into someone's liberty, frankly. Yeah, exactly. In, in, what, in what looks like a, a sort of inconsequential area, because this is gaming, video gaming, not gambling. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, there's all the, the significant impact on, again, Tencent, which is one of the key players in this sector, um, and a, a significant impact on its share price. And then you've got the property um, sector, uh, where property developers We'll look at Evergrande um, and see that the government's priority is to ensure stability in this sector um, and will want to ensure that property isn't used for short-term economic stimulus. So there's going to be you know, a real focus on, on not flipping um, properties in the way that we see a lot of in, in Hong Kong. Um, so that, that's, again, a, a key significant change. And then recently there was a, a ban on crypto trading and crypto mining, which again will have quite a significant impact given that there's quite a lot of that in in china and it previously had been at the forefront of, of a lot of this um and then th there's going to be i think more to come because there's this whole narrative of common prosperity and that's going to manifest itself in in various forms including for example ensuring that very rich entrepreneurs uh, will not be able to take their cash out of china 
um, and that can be evidenced by not only the, the uh, crackdown on US listings, but also the recent Blackstone, um, Blackstone's attempted acquisition of Soho, um, which would have made the founders really rich. And then that was, that was withdrawn um, earlier this month. So my takeaway of all of this is that there's going to be um, greater uncertainty um, in the regula regulatory landscape in China. Um, and if you look at the past 12 months, there have been pretty dramatic actions taken um, in a very short space of time. And for me, what's interesting is that the Chinese companies are very obedient. There, there's, no, there's no appeal, there's no real legal challenge to all of the steps that have been taken. Um, and, and that's culturally the, the way that Chinese companies um, react to, to these sudden changes. So I think there's more uncertainty to come in this space. And it's quite hard to say today what that uncertainty does for foreign deals. We're not seeing the effect yet, but I think if you look at the, the stock market, the Hang Seng is off, what, 20% in the last couple of months. It's been a really volatile and rocky time. And I think obviously that's the most immediate way that one sees how foreign capital sees, sees these moves by the Chinese government. Um, so the third and final point we wanted to touch on briefly is what we're seeing in Southeast Asia. Um, just to start with 2020, I think it was a really bad year for, for, the, for, the, for the region, um, difficult for the economies and for M&A activity. Uh, that was largely driven by COVID-19's first wave being really there, and then we saw the lockdowns rolled out. So really from Q1 of last year, we saw a really chilling effect on the economies and also on M&A deal flow. Um, over the year, value of deals was down 25%. And if you took out uh, one big acquisition, which was, um, the Tesco's disposal of its Thai and Malaysia business. Value was actually down 50% in the region. Well, what have we seen so far year to date? Um, unfortunately, it's not been a very smooth recovery yet uh, and a bit of a mixed bag. We are seeing really significant outbreaks of, of COVID um, despite continuing tough restrictions. And we have no, basically no international travel yet due to uh, onerous quarantine requirements. So we've seen, you know, particularly tough times even in Singapore and Thailand and Malaysia at the moment, which are key markets for M&A. That being said, we are seeing M&A pick up um, despite the challenges, although it is my experience that it is taking a long time to do deals. Um, I think partly just because we cannot get around and sit in a room and, and, and cut through issues. Uh, and I think also with the recent outbreaks again of COVID valuations are becoming uncertain. In the medium term, though, we do see uh, as, as the pandemic fades um, and, and monetary policies remain loose, we do see Southeast Asia returning to, to be a, a key driver of activity for our clients and also then for us in M&A. And I think three, three key reasons for that. One is slightly ironically, given what we discussed at the start about US-China tensions, I think Southeast Asia should become a beneficiary of that as a destination for manufacturing as, as companies seek to diversify their supply chains. The second point is that Southeast Asia has been incredibly clever about putting in place this ever-increasing network of free trade agreements, which makes it uh, very attractive as a place to build things. Um, so last year, at the end of 2020, they put in place the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which also included China. Uh, and effectively, that created the world's largest free trading bloc, covering about 30% of the world's population and economy. And then the third and final reason is just the economic and demographic fundamentals. Um, and that is that we have this growing, young, educated 
getting wealthier group of people in Southeast Asia as it moves up the value chain. And what that means is that, that you now have increasingly got consumer markets as well as manufacturing markets in the same place. So overall, despite the sort of turbulence that we're seeing at the start, I think we do expect to see clients return to Southeast Asia to do deals and not just, I think, for manufacturing, like maybe it was the, the focus in the past, but actually also for, for growth as well as the consumer market increases there. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.